Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Fertility Podcast. I'm Natalie Silverman, your host, and if this is your first dip into listening to something about your own fertility journey, if you're basically trying to get pregnant, whether you're a guy or a girl, and so far it hasn't happened, maybe you've been told you need to have fertility treatment, maybe you're just trying to do some research to find out what else you can do to make yourselves the best you can be to try and start your family, well, this podcast is a resource for you, a place that you can trust and after having successful fertility treatment in 2014, I decided to set about speaking to as many people as I could, whether it was people like you and I sharing our stories or fertility experts, those working within the fields, whether they were in clinics or whether they worked in more holistic type treatments. And so I'm on episode 88, not far from the 100 mark, and it's just been a real privilege for me. And I hope that you find this useful. We're about to speak to Professor Gita Nogund, who will explain what she's all about. What I will say is that what Gita has created, if I'd have known about when we were told that we needed to have treatment, I definitely would have gone down the route that she advocates. So sit back or continue on if you're on the move. Uh, And I really hope you find Gita as fascinating as I did. So I'm delighted to welcome Professor Gita Nogun to the podcast, uh, founder of Create Fertility, and I have been chasing her for quite a while. So this is this is a, a momentous Friday afternoon for me. Gita, welcome. Thank you, Natalie. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, there's lots I want to talk to you about. You you write in so many different places in the media. You're so outspoken about a number of issues and, and a brilliant spokesperson as well. But first and foremost, let's talk about Create and what it stands for, being the pioneers of of natural and mild IVF treatment in the UK. I founded CREATE back in 2000, and CREATE was founded with an ethos to protect women's health and safety in IVF treatment, and also to make treatments accessible. So I'm absolutely dedicated to protecting women's health and safety in fertility treatment. And I feel very strongly about it because men don't suffer during fertility treatment. And why should women suffer? Today, I have written an article in The Guardian about male fertility and male biological clock. And I'll tell you why that is relevant to the point I'm making is because thousands of women undergo IVF treatment. That's taking drugs, putting their health at risk, having physical, psychological burden of IVF treatment, undergo egg collections and procedures. Thousands of fertile women undergo IVF treatment because their partners have sperm problem. And so this is an example to show how women end up having treatment and why it is very important to make treatment safe for women all the time. And when I was a junior doctor, I became aware of, um, you know, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and uh, deaths from ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And it really was the turning point for me when I heard about a young woman in her 20s who had died with severe ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome when she was a fit and healthy woman who had just come off fertility treatment. And that was absolutely shocking for me. And that's when really where I said to myself, this cannot continue, this cannot happen. We're trying to create life and we cannot take away life, which is when actually I decided that we need to do something about it, which is about doing research into IVF without drugs or with very few drugs, effectively 
reducing and eventually eliminating side effects and risk for women, it is just not acceptable that women have to suffer during fertility treatment. CREATE was founded with the ethos of carrying out IVF treatment or fertility treatment as naturally as possible, which means where a woman is trying for a baby, where she doesn't need treatment, all she needs is some advice to help with her fertility, to maximize her natural fertility, to give that. Where she needs treatment, to do it with um, no drugs or minimal drugs, and to do with as little intervention as possible. Not only that we are protecting the health and safety of women, but also protecting the health and safety of the offspring produced from treatment. So that is the first principle of CREATE. So and we're very proud to have achieved that because, to be honest, it is 17 years now since CREATE started as an organization, and we have not had a single woman admitted to hospital with severe ovarian upper stimulation syndrome. And I'm very, very, very proud of that record because to me that means a lot. It is not about just a success of IVF is just about pregnancy or a baby. Success of IVF is about producing that healthy baby with health risk to the child and with a healthy mother and not putting the health of that woman at any risk in the short or the long term. So a healthy mother and a healthy baby at minimal cost possible is what is the success for me. So it is we need to change the paradigm as regards to the success, rather than just looking at a quick fix, but looking at the long-term health implications to the woman and to the child, and also the cost effectiveness. And the cost is not just economical cost, but it's the full cost about any health implications, what it would cost to our National Health Service if women got admitted to hospital with ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and suffered from long-term health risks as well. So. I have a different approach how I look at fertility treatment, and I would like to continue with it because I've stuck my neck out. I've founded an international scientific society called ISMARC, which absolutely promotes natural and mild approaches in assisted reproduction globally. We conduct world congresses. We conduct workshops, teaching programs. We are developing low-cost IVF in developing countries along with reducing the risk for women. So that is what it create is about. It's about success with safety. And when you talk about costs, the way that the treatment works is there's less drugs on there. It's a milder stimulation process. The treatment itself, as you've just described, has less side effects as a result. And and also I thought it was interesting to see that you can also work with patients who might have issues like a low ovarian reserve or other issues and still have a successful outcome, even though you might assume you'd need more drugs in the whole process if you've got one of these conditions. Absolutely, Natalie. That's a, it's very important that you raise that because the role of uh, natural IVF, of modified natural IVF that we use now, particularly is to help women with low reserve, older women, women who do not respond to conventional fertility drugs and women who don't implant uh, with conventional fertility treatment. Because when a woman is older or when a woman has low reserve, because we mustn't forget that there are a lot of young women who have got low reserve as well. And we have helped lots of women who did not respond or responded poorly to conventional high-dose fertility drugs. And they were told that their only option of having a baby was with donor eggs. 
And many, many such women have taken babies home, healthy babies home with their own eggs because we work with their natural cycle egg rather than hoping for those ovaries to respond with many eggs. Because remember, when an ovary is older or when an ovary has got low egg reserve, just giving high-dose drugs is not going to make more eggs. You cannot run a marathon when there are no runners, okay? So clearly, it is in those situations where giving high-dose drugs, we cannot expect that we're going to get more eggs. And in fact, if we expect that A, it is not going to happen, B, it is more likely to compromise the egg quality, instead going with a naturally selected egg and making that happen is not only scientifically logical and woman but also it's a great thing to achieve because at the end of the day most women would want to have no drugs or less drugs no injections or less injections less interference to their lives low cost and a success at the end of it because there's a, some women feel good about it that it's their own naturally selected egg that made a baby rather than drugging their follicles and giving them side effects so it is very much what women want and when you talk about a naturally selected egg can you just explain what that means so essentially as you know when um, during a human ovulation i tend to compare it the analogy being like a marathon and in a marathon there are runners and in, in human ovulation, there are follicles who are kind of like runners. So follicles are egg sacs. That are, you know, in a woman who has got a normal egg reserve or high egg reserve, there's a lot more runners. There are a lot more follicles. They start the journey hoping that they will be the one that will get to the line and ovulate. So in a natural selection means these follicles start the journey of what we call recruitment, hoping to get selected and eventually ovulating or releasing the egg. So in natural ovulation or natural conception, the ovary selects a follicle or an egg sac, which will eventually ovulate and release the egg. That's what I mean by natural selection, right. as opposed to drugging these follicles and making many of them run and then hoping that more of them will be collected. Yes, you can collect more eggs if a woman has good reserve, if you give high stimulation, but you don't expect all those eggs to be normal or mature or of good quality. Human ovary is not made to release a lot of good quality mature eggs in one go. Okay, so we are expected to release one egg per cycle or occasionally two eggs or so which is why we get you know twins but the important message here is a naturally selected egg is the one that the ovary selects which is a, the healthiest and um, the best egg that it selects for release that's what i mean and what all we are doing is monitoring the uh, the cycle and there's also very modification of natural cycle in order to reduce the risk of spontaneous ovulation. So essentially what we are doing is we are monitoring with ultrasound scan, blood tests to follow that single follicle. There's, there's a huge expertise required, commitment required from the clinic, from the doctors to make this happen because we actually measure the blood flow to the follicle to assess the health of the egg. And then we use these indicators like the size of the follicle, the blood flow to the follicle, hormone levels in blood, the lining of the womb, 
all of these to try and put them in a jigsaw to see, okay, this follicle is going to be a good one. This follicle is likely to give us a good quality egg based on its blood flow, based on its quality parameters. And then we collect that naturally selected egg and we then give it to the embryologist to fertilize and make that into an embryo, an embryo that could become a blastocyst. So that's what I mean by natural selection. I understand. Now, one question that I have for you with regards to the approach that CREATE has is if a couple have been diagnosed with being a male factor issue and are told they need ICSI, would it not then make sense for the woman to be instantly put through a mild cycle because the issue isn't with her? And if that's the case, why isn't that happening more with regards to NHS treatment? If it is known that it is a male factor problem, that the sperm is suboptimal, either in its quantity or quality, and they, they require ICSI, then you make a decision based on the woman's situation. If the woman has normal reserve, then yes, we do put them through mild IVF because we give them small dose of medication within their natural cycle. Because remember, there are differences between mild IVF is a type of stimulated IVF, okay? And stimulated IVF could be conventional IVF and mild IVF. And conventional IVF, by definition, is where one would call it a long cycle, where woman receives medication for up to two weeks to suppress her hormones first and followed by higher dosages of stimulation for another two weeks. So it could last for three and a half to four weeks of daily injections as opposed to in mild IVF, anywhere between five to nine days versus three to four weeks, which is a huge difference for a woman. And I've never had one woman put her hand up saying, I quite like having injections. No, certainly not. Natalie, I sometimes wonder if IVF treatment was such that men had to take injections every day, whether we would have ended up in the situation we are today. Mm. I think we know the answer to that one, don't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So all I'm saying is women not only are willing to undergo all this, they're willing to undergo that even when it's not their problem and it's a sperm problem. Well, I'm actually talking from my own experience because that's what we had. We had ICSI and my treatment was three to four weeks, you know, from what I remember. I I have learned so much more about the whole world of fertility since doing this podcast and, you know, wasn't aware of what you were doing this was in 2014 when we had treatment so it's really interesting you know to get that message out there because more and more people are self-funding ultimately I mean we were fortunate to have NHS funding and we're fortunate to have success first time but in hindsight if we hadn't and you know we'd have had to go again with what I know now and the problem not being with me I would have definitely you know been looking at the, the way that Create offers treatments. We'll be back with Gita just after these messages from my wonderful sponsors. The Fertility Podcast is supported by Ovusense. If you're trying to monitor your cycle and finding it overwhelming, Ovusense is the only ovulation monitor on the market that is a class two medical device. It has a vaginal sensor and app and it fits like a tampon so it's really easy to use and comfortable to wear. You use it at night whilst you sleep and then in the morning you simply remove, wash it and download your data to see your cycle pattern. Now Ovusense has proven comfortable for women in over 10,000 cycles of use and can predict ovulation up to a day in advance and can confirm it with 99% accuracy. To find out more, visit ovusense.com. The Fertility Podcast is also supported by IVF Matters, the UK's first online fertility clinic where you can order tests delivered to your door, have scans at multiple locations and speak to consultants in the comfort of your own home. 
It's a truly unique way to experience your fertility journey. And you can find out more at ivfmatters.co.uk. Thank you, Natalie. Not only I thank you for that comment, but also I thank you because of the effort you're making to educate, because that is hugely important to educate young people and men and women about fertility and you're doing that great service and i'm really grateful that you're doing that because what we want to do eventually is to not only raise awareness and educate to reduce the need for fertility treatment and increase natural conceptions but let me go back to your question about ICSI. so yes of course mild because remember as far as i'm concerned whether it's nhs or private we should still have the same ethos, which is reduce complications, reduce costs, increase success, and have a healthy mother and a healthy child at the end of it. And the same applies to whether it's public or private sector, because we cannot have women ending up in hospital with ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Not only that, it costs hundreds of thousands of pounds to a national health service. It can leave long-term complications on women's health, and we do not want that. So going back to your question on ICSI, yes, women can have mild IVF, so they take less drugs in their natural cycle for only for five to nine days, so that we aim for quality of eggs, not quantity of eggs, and they're able to have good embryos, um, and then they can decide whether having a fresh embryo transferred in freeze if there are any good quality left, or whether they want to have them as a frozen embryo transfer. I mean, are you finding in the time you've been practicing more clinics are adapting your approach now? Absolutely. No two ways about that. First of all, remember, when I first published the Natural Cycle Cumulative Libert's rate paper in 2001, uh, Bob Edwards, the pioneer of IVF, was quite excited about that paper and he actually press-released it from the Human Reproduction Journal and there was a global interest about the coming back of natural IVF and how can we make it more successful. Because remember, with every technology, yes, we get excited about it, we go with it, and then suddenly there comes a time when we pause and we pause and we say, what are we doing? Is this going in the direction we want it? Or should we take a step back to make it safer? That happens to many technologies and many things in healthcare as well. So if we look back, of course, we started with natural IVF. You know, July 25th next year in 2018, Louise Brown will be 40 years old. Yeah. And she was born with natural IVF. No drugs were given to her mom. Naturally selected egg was collected, fertilized with her dad's sperm. And there was little Louise, who is going to be 40 years old. And so natural IVF is how IVF began. And then it became very aggressive. And then now we're going back quite rightly so, because we want to, there are more than 600 patients, according to some recent data in the UK, women admitted with OHSS. And we need to check such data. But we, what we want to do is now when hyperstimulation syndrome is a preventable condition. It yeah. shouldn't happen. Women shouldn't end up in hospital. And as far as I'm concerned, if I could say one woman from hospital admission, that is good enough for me. If I could say one woman from dying anywhere in the world from OHSS, I've done my job. To be honest, I'm deeply committed to making sure women do not suffer infertility treatment and their long-term health doesn't suffer. And what is more interesting now, Natalie, is this, that the data from the last like five to seven years has shown that 
if you give high amount of drugs and if you increase estrogen levels in a woman's body during conventional IVF treatment and you put, you put back an embryo in that cycle, then the baby or babies born from that cycle are at significantly higher risk of being premature or of low birth weight. Okay, so let's go back to this statement. It means that high dose drugs or high estrogen levels created in a woman's body in IVF treatment, not, not only unsafe for women, but also not healthy for children that we produce. The drugs and the estrogen levels, high levels of estrogens, have damaging effects both not for women and children. So why do it when we can get away without using high-dose drugs? They cost more money. They have side effects and risks. You know, I have met many women who have been through conventional treatments elsewhere and actually have used the words about, it was a punishing regime for me, okay? And why do this to women? Yeah. You know, they are coming for fertility treatment. Healthy, happy women who want to complete their family or want to have a family. Yeah. And they've come to us for help. Many times they may, may not need even help in the form of fertility treatment. All they may need is advice to increase their natural conception chances. And if they do, we have an absolute duty and obligation to make sure that we give them the safest treatment, the cheapest treatment, and also healthiest treatment. Now, we've talked about cost a couple of times here, and you and I are speaking in uh, June 2017 for anybody listening to this podcast in the future. And there has recently been a general election in the UK. And you wrote a few weeks back about IVF tourism and called for a national IVF tariff. Um, do you think that this is something you can see being discussed in light of more and more CCGs cutting funding for NHS treatments. So people are going to be self-funding more and more and you're offering a more cost-effective way for people to get treatment. But is it going to be a case that it is down to cost ultimately with all the different clinics battling out to win people's custom? Yeah, look, I've been campaigning for the National tariff for um, more than a decade Okay, um, asking for a national tariff because it's just, I mean, it's completely logical that we have national tariff for other procedures and treatments in the NHS and not for IVF. Why? Hmm. Why is that? It just doesn't make sense. So we know that across the nation, and I'm very proud to say we provide very low price to the National Health Service. We also provide treatment to 20 CCGs. NHS treatment. What I want to say is I'm very proud to provide low cost to, to NHS, but I hear that it, the, the price for IVF that the CCGs are paying to providers goes from, you know, 2,500 to, I thought it was 6,500. Someone said to me yesterday that somewhere it was like 11,000 pounds. So I can't confirm that, but all I'm saying is, isn't just that not completely unacceptable that a provider can get away with charging high amounts for a per IVF treatment to CCGs when if it is 6,000, we could be providing two IVF cycles in that money, which means we could be offering more treatments within the existing budget. 
because I know the government keeps saying, oh, we haven't got money, we've got priorities, we haven't got uh, money for everything. Yes, okay, well, let's provide more treatment to more people within the existing budget. And the national tariff has the ability to achieve that. And it's achieved, I also work in Belgium, and it's achieved in Belgium very successfully more than 10 years ago. It's achieved in France. It's achieved in many European countries. And why not in the UK? Why are we behind? And in fact, I feel we are letting our couples down and women down because our national funding on the NHS is really not good when it comes to that. So we can achieve that. What I'm calling for is a number of things we can do. One is to achieve that national target. Secondly, we need to reduce complications, complications that require hospital admissions, like OHSS, complications like multiple pregnancies and multiple births that take uh, more money out of NHS. I almost feel so strongly, Nathalie, that IVF clinics that produce complications where women end up in hospitals or HSS or produce multiple births and take more neonatal beds should be made to pay for those costs, okay? Interesting. Yes, so that the National Health Service can get that money back and use it to offer more treatments. So we have a responsibility to reduce complications so that we don't take up more NHS money. It doesn't matter where treatments are done. They could be done in the private sector, they could be done in some other country, but our national health service takes care of them when complications happen. And how likely do you think a fertility clinic is likely to be accountable if that's happened during their care? Well, I would um, like to say that fertility clinics should be held accountable if hospital admissions with OHSS happen and, you know, they generate multiple parts. You know, we are taking right now actions because the HFEA is introducing, HFEA has been promoting single embryo transfer, elective single embryo transfer for many years, and I applaud them for that. And now they are changing the way success rates are presented, and that is aimed at reducing multiple births as well. But what is a problem at the moment is there's very clear indication that um, um, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome admissions are not always reported or underreported. So we need to make that mandatory. Um, the admissions must be reported so that we have really a clear idea of how many patients are admitted. But is this going to happen? I suppose we'll need to make it happen. And one other thing I'm trying to do at the moment is to see if we can get the welfare of the women included in, in the Parliamentary Act. Because as you know, Natalie, that the welfare of the child is part of our Parliamentary HFEA Act, which is the Human Fertilization Embryology Act. Um, taking care of the welfare of the child during fertility treatment when we offer fertility treatment is mandatory and is something that we must oblige and we must do. But the welfare of the woman is not part of it. And I, I'm, I'm really campaigning for the welfare of the woman to be included in the Parliamentary Act so that it becomes part of the remit of the HFEA in the future. Because at the moment, they are doing their very best to do everything, but their powers are limited as well yeah. as to taking care of it. So 
I suppose I have stuck my neck out to try and protect women in fertility treatment, and I'll continue to do so uh, with more natural and mild IVF treatments. And now, quite clearly, we are providing mild IVF to many NHS patients, which I'm very proud of. And we, we are trying to reduce cost all the time and increase accessibility and reduce complications. And, and that's because we look at the success of IVF quite differently, which is really the long-term health of the woman and the baby. We want to help women to have it all, which is the family, the career, everything they want. And to do that, we have to advance fertility. And before you go, I just do want to say that we need to shift the paradigm from treatment to prevention, which is why I launched fertility education in schools. And you have no idea how well it is received and how grateful teachers feel at the moment that their kids are getting educated about fertility education. And I think we should get that into curriculum and maybe another time you can dedicate so that we absolutely campaign for fertility education together. I'd love to. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you too, Geeta. It's been lovely chatting to you. And I will put all the links to the different articles that I've mentioned that you've written in the show notes as well for this. And I look forward to it. We'll definitely be speaking again. It's been really interesting. Thank you, Natalie. Bless you. Thank you, you very much. Bye, Geeta. Bye. To find out more about Geeta, the show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash Gita G-E-E-T-A and there I will put as always links to Gita's social media and also to create and some of the newspaper articles that Gita has written if you have any questions do please get in touch and let me know now a couple of episodes that I've got coming up that I'd be interested to hear from you about are I'm going to be putting a focus on PCOS so if that's something that you've struggled with and would like to share your story please do email me natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com I'm also going to be speaking with the donor conception network so if you'd like to share your story of working with a donor whether it was a donor egg or a sperm donor it'd be really interesting to hear from you so again my email is natalie at the fertilitypodcast.com or you can just tweet me at fertilitypoddy i really hope this has been useful it's always good to hear from you and if you do have the time to pop into itunes and subscribe to the podcast and rate and review tell me what you think it just makes a real difference to spreading the word about this podcast So take care and until the next time, 